0: Welcome back to The Chosen Life. I'm your host, The Chosen Lawyer, and very honored today to have a very special guest, the one, the only, George Hill. George, welcome to The Chosen Life.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chosen Lawyer. I appreciate you inviting me on the show. I look forward to us having a very fruitful and fun conversation.
0: I got to tell you, this is a big honor because I've had quite a few celebrities on this show already, and as far as having just taped James Hinchcliffe, you know, race car driver uh buff bagwell wrestler uh steve carsey with our documentary series have not had an nba star yet and to have somebody with the career that you've had so far finished last season with the bucks played with Giannis, lebron haven't won the ring yet as far as i know buddy you've done it all in the nba world Uh, that's not me
1: buddy that's the wrong george hill
0: wow this is uh
1: rather embarrassing um i think you need to go back and look at wikipedia or something
0: I got to say, because you're stylish, you're in great shape, you look like you're ready to run up and down the court. So wait a minute, I mixed up George Hill NBA star with George Hill automotive and real estate mogul.
1: That's right. That's right. Mogul, I wouldn't necessarily say, but uh, you know what, if you want to stretch that term, I'm okay with that.
0: Okay, so tongue in cheek, folks, I do actually know which George Hill this is, although I do get on him quite a bit about the similarities in name. How often do people bring up George Hill NBA star with you?
1: Um, every once in a while. Every once in a while. Um, obviously, the person is going to have to know a little bit about basketball. And uh, I always say, you know what? I just wish I had his bank account. It's the he, best response. He wishes
0: he had your hair, your beard, and your good looks, man. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe. We'll, we'll, we'll give me that one. Have you ever been in a restaurant or at some kind of convention? Anybody looked at your ID and mistaken you at all?
1: No, certainly not. I got mistaken for one of the guys on the Shaws of Sunset the other day when I was in Tampa, but uh, it wasn't me there either.
0: So we did not meet at an NBA game. So George Hill, for all you know, is one of my best friends. Um, We uh, share common loves in many ventures as far as... uh, Nutrition, uh, fitness, real estate, cars, but George, why don't you first tell people the story of how we met? Because you'll be better telling that story.
1: Sure. Actually, it's it's two instances really how we met. Um, So you were the uh, the opposing uh, lawyer for a real estate transaction that we were that we were uh, selling as part of our real estate rangers venture, and uh, we were having a few issues with with our lawyer at the time and Eddie and myself were pretty impressed with how everything was going down so subsequent to that um, you know we were we were starting to look for someone so knowing that that went that well we're like hey you know what let's let's keep this guy in mind for the future after that happened my wife was looking to set up a business and I got onto the a phone call with Nasir Manji, who is a real estate agent, because we were uh, dealing with another transaction.
0: Great realtor su- in the Mississauga, Ontario absolutely, area. Folks. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. Known,
1: him, known him for a long, long time. He's been in the business for many, many years. And uh, he suggested, "Hey, Jonathan, did you remember the guy?" I'm like, "Yeah, we certainly remember him." So I picked up the phone. I called. I left a message for Jonathan. I got a phone call after that, and then I think we spent probably at least two hours on the phone, just talking about everything under the sun, and. Uh, cars and uh, and business and how to set it up and corporations and and taxation Uh, and we just decided at that point that we're going to switch all of our portfolio of stuff to you and everything went smoothly with my wife's business transaction closing selling everything and We've continued to maintain a relationship thereafter. We won't tell them about you and me going on vacation, but that's another story. No,
0: that's another. Yeah, another
1: yeah that's, story, another podcast. Utter, that's, a, that's another podcast.
0: <laughs> no, this is, this is a PG rated podcast, so we're not going to go there. But Eddie, being Eddie B, your uh, friend, brother, business partner as well, yeah. you're forgetting one telephone conversation that I'll never forget. When that transaction completed, you did call me with Eddie right at the conclusion of the transaction. Yeah, yes,
1: we did. Yes, we did.
0: And you said, we enjoyed working with you. Would it be okay if we hire you and you'd be on our side and work together on future transactions? Correct. 100%. One hundred percent. One of the greatest phone calls I've ever had in my life. And I said to you, yes, yes, we can.
1: Good. And you know what? We're happy. And as you know, subsequently we've done further business. I've, I bought some more stuff. I've set up some corporations for some holding companies that I needed uh, in the automotive business. And, uh, you, you've been a great support to us. So I always will refer people to you, my staff, my friends, in the event that, that uh, they need any sort of legal advice. And I always look forward to us working together.
0: Well, it's very much appreciated. It's amazing. Um, when people touch your lives, you come together, and it's amazing how you come together. You know, the universe kind of does its thing, and its magic. But I got to tell you that as we started working together, uh, myself as a chosen lawyer. I was not the chosen lawyer at the time. I, I was going to be future, but at the time as Jonathan and yourself and Eddie, and we started having this relationship and I thought, you know what, these guys are pretty cool. And I like speaking with them. I said to you guys, you know what, let's go for dinner one night. Let's get to know each other face-to-face because we've been doing a lot of business together. And I'd like to be able to put properly a face to the name. Cause you know, so much stuff you're doing always virtually, even back then, you know, it's a number of years ago and that dinner was a changing point, I think, in my life, for sure. I just remember sitting down with you guys, and my, one of my first impressions was, these guys get it. You know, they just get it. They're, you meet people that you can either feel like you've talked to them and you've known them your whole life, or you have nothing, not, not two words to say to them. And I got to tell you, both you and Eddie changed my life that night.
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad that we had some impact, because you definitely did as well, too. Uh, I agree with you. We we talked about a lot of positive things, and you know, unfortunately, in this world, there's a lot of negativity with many things. When you think back about it, I was I was actually watching something yesterday, and it was a professor giving a, a talk about negativity and how the human being is preconditioned to be negative because of the fact of caveman days. And you, know, you roll back your stone and you walk out and you take a look and you're wondering if a saber tooth tiger is going to kill you or if you're going to get stomped on by some sort of woolly mammoth and And it's very interesting because human beings definitely are semi-programmed to be that way. It's the one thing that your brain can kind of automatically go to where you get anxious and you worry. And, you know, it was one thing that we definitely yourself, Eddie and myself had that common ground where we always try to be as positive as possible, no matter what was going on, because, you know, we had a conversation that night at dinner where you were having a few health problems, right? But the way that you approached it, the way that you approached it was different than most people who complain about it. You're like, well, you know, it's a good thing that it happened. And everything's good now, not everybody approaches that way. So that's why we get along so well.
0: Well, I remember very distinctly, you guys inspiring me to say something. And I, and it it stayed with me since, and it was the idea of watching you in action. The three of us came from our own different worlds, you know, and our own experiences, everything else fell down on the ground, face down, getting up, brushing ourselves off and keep going and keep going. And I said to you at some point, you know, I feel like we need to start an organization. And we're going to call it the 2% club. And we're going to have our little pins. And it's going to say 2% on the pin. And you're going to bring together everybody in this 2% club that fits the 2% club. And when people come up to you and tell you, What's, what does that mean, 2%? And the response is, if you don't know what a 2%er is, you ain't.
1: Listen, the reality is that you're a 1%er. Let's, let's, let's call it exactly what it is. You're definitely a 1%er in my eyes.
0: I, I got to tell you, listen, it's because I'm wearing the millions.co. That's millions.co shirt. <laughs> this is part of uh, my branding. Uh, they they put together uh, merchandising for athletes. And through my fitness and uh, bodybuilding uh, career, uh, people can go on and type in Chosen Lawyer and purchase their very own Chosen Lawyer Chosen Life podcast merch. But just because I have a merch line does not make me a 1%er, my friend. Because to me, one percenter is the Queen of England, Mick Jagger, uh, P. Diddy, that's a one percenter. That it, The spread between 1% and 2% is very, very, very big. And sure. then it seems like 2 to 5% and then everybody else from the 5% on. But also what the measure of a 2% is very, very subjective. Is it about education? Is it about income? Is it about net worth? Is it about prestige? Is it all the above? I don't have that kind of answer. I just know, I think it's a great idea.
1: Well, we can agree to disagree on that one. Yes. However, maybe you have a one percenter attitude.
0: You know what? It's uh, if you only have two attitudes in my, in my mind, you're either a wolf or you're a sheep and you're either going to always be out for the hunt, so to speak, and be hungry and be ready to be your own leader, or you're ready to follow the pack with your head down. And that's fine too. You know, you're going to be one or the other generally, and as long as there's breath in my body, in my mind, it's wolf mentality. I love it. Wolf pack. The wolf pack. That's maybe where WCW got it from. <laughs> That's right. So, as we got to know each other, it's, it's just again, because we're talking about our journeys and where we all come to be. We come together and then our lives go in a direction, you know? And as I said, when I met you and I met Eddie, my life only felt better, took off, so to speak. You guys, when I look at you, George, You know, we room together, we're on vacation. I see the best version of me. I see what I strive to be. I strive to be good looking, groomed, stylish, speak well, entrepreneur, and quote unquote, do something with my life. And I always was quite marveling as, as I've learned bits and pieces as to what is the George Hill story. So sitting where you are today, my friend. How did you get to where you are today?
1: So let me, let me chat a little bit about that. So, you know, that I wasn't born in Canada. I was born in the small island of Barbados and I lived there until I was about 14 years old. And my parents decided that they wanted to have a better life for us, even though don't get me wrong, the life is, is great there. Uh, so big up to any of my Barbadian people that are on online. That would be amazing if you guys are watching. Uh, love, your pl-
0: love your place. It's just awesome weather. Awesome. People. Yes.
1: Now, if I was to speak the dialect to you, nobody would really understand, so I'll try and stay with this uh, with this tone now. But uh, we ended up moving here when I was about 14, 15 years old, and um, my sister, myself, my family, everybody relocated here. I had a brother um, who was Down syndrome, and he moved with us as well, and Canada afforded him very many, uh, let's say, opportunities as well, because you don't normally have those opportunities in the Caribbean and it worked out wonderfully for him so even at at the time when he moved he was you know in his 40s he was able to to shine here as well and i think that you know my sister myself were able to shine here we took a lot of the 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 base that we had there and transferred it here but i do have to say that a lot of it wouldn't have come and i would not have been able to do as well if i didn't have people in my life like my brother or my parents um because they're the ones that really taught me how to work hard and to try and find direction, because ultimately, sometimes in life, you need a change to be able to get you to go where you're going. And if I probably remained in Barbados, I would not have done as well, because I would not have had the direction or the motivation to move forward, because life there is a fair bit easier in terms of, you know, the nice beach and surfing and all those sorts of things around there. So that was a big part of me getting along my way, moving here. I, um, I ended up getting a co-op position years ago through one of my aunts. And I was hired at BMO as a weekend supervisor for one of their call centers. And throughout that time, I grew while going to school within the call center. So I moved into different departments and ended up uh, running and closing a department uh, when I was 18. I was one of the youngest team managers ever. And my job was to transfer people to um, a new department and and close down the old department while merging all the technology that was available to the two departments. So I learned a lot doing that. I was very fortunate in in the respect that I had a manager who really liked me and she gave me 30 hours a week to work, which if I was going to school and I did a full course load and I got 70% or more. At the end of the year, I got to clean back my books and my tuition from the bank. It was a it was a different thing to, to what it was here. So I was a very fortunate person that although I was still working and I worked hard because I was doing you know a full course load and working 30 hours a week, I was still able to get the majority of my tuition paid for. So subsequently, it put me in a better it put me in a better frame coming out of university with no debt. Right. Smart so strategy. after that full time job started working for the bank you know obviously it's something where you feel obligated to give them your time back cuz they were good to me so i ended up staying there for another 5 6 years and during that time i ended up learning a little bit about real estate i was reading books about real estate i ran a department there i was a team manager for a department of about 22 people and uh, and i ran that department started buying properties so i bought a small property in Don Mills that uh, i Went in, renovated, it was in really bad shape, rented it out for a few years, ended up selling it eventually. But during that time, when I was doing that, I met Eddie. So seeing Eddie, he was on the same floor as me, but it was through another mutual friend that we were looking at tax foreclosed properties, because it was something I was trying to get into. And Eddie was a third partner that was brought in on this deal, but I never met him before. So I go into the washroom, and I don't know if Eddie told you the story, but I go into the washroom. And we met each other in the washroom. So he tells you a different story to how I tell it because his
0: gets all dirty and stuff. Some of my my best (laughs) meetings were meeting in the bathroom. I understand.
1: So we stood up for like another 20 minutes, just chatting in the washroom right by like the door. And, uh, and this is how him and I started on the whole real estate venture. So long how long
0: ago was this by the way?
1: This was uh,
0: 23 years ago. I heard that's how Wozniak and Jobs met originally in the high school bathroom. <laughs> so so, uh,
1: so, we started buying property, him and myself, going in, fixing them up. And, uh, and then we started learning things. So we, we went to different cor- courses that were run um, through some of the real estate associations out there. And uh, we flew out to, to Alberta. And we learned about valuing properties and how to force appreciate and then we started to take that and turn it into things so we'd buy a property and then we would start involving investors and this is how we've grown to how we've grown and this is you know part of the reason how we met you but during that time I decided that I was going to leave uh, the bank so the bank had turned into Moneris and I decided that I was going to leave and I did some consulting for about 18 months with the government and as you realize when you consult the government contracts sometimes can be spotty so there were there were times in between where you wouldn't have a contract. you pick up another contract for three months, then you wouldn't have a contract, and you pick up another contract. So it was, it was pretty interesting stuff, the way that you'd have to really keep an eye on, on, on marketing yourself and making sure you continue to get jobs. So there was one point where they were taking just a really long time for this project that I was working on to have a second phase starting. They just kept delaying it, delaying it. It was supposed to be a four-year commitment. So I was getting a little frustrated after three, four months that I didn't have work. And I was up for this position and my brother-in-law, who, ended up, who I ended up working with, kept calling me saying, listen, you're not working. Why don't you come and sell cars? With Why don't you come sell cars? I'm like, dude, there's no way I'm going to sell cars, right? Um, so, so I was like, you know what? Listen, I'm up for this position. If I don't get it, I will come and work at Chrysler with you. And he's like, okay, fair enough. Because literally he was calling me every single day, right? And, so and, I just, and, I just didn't why, shut why, him up.
0: And why you at this point? Like, why, why did he pick you?
1: Right. He just kept saying to me, listen, I think you'd be really good at it. Interesting. So I'm like, listen, I've never sold anything in my life. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be good at it. Yes, I can speak to people well. Yes, I'm professional. But I, I don't know if I'm going to do well at it. So anyway, I ended up not getting the job that I was supposed to get. So I pick up the phone the next morning and I call him. And I said, you know what? I'm a man of my word. I didn't get the job. So I'll come down. And I'll meet you at the dealership that you're at. He was at one of the Chrysler dealerships here in Mississauga. Okay. And I will start working with you. So he said to me, you know what? My dad's friend just bought a Ford dealership and he needs some good people there. Why don't you go see him? I'll get an interview set up for you and I'll get you in there. So I'm like, okay, fair enough. So I went in, I met the guy at the time, the owner who's he's not, not the owner now. But uh, he said to me, when can you start tomorrow? I'm like, well, how about Monday? So I started. Didn't really know much about the about car business. Of course, I, I loved cars. And I knew about engines. And I knew about horsepower and all this sort of stuff. And uh, he's like, okay, I, I, I want to get you on the sales team. So I started working. Anyway, by the second month, I was a top sales guy here.
0: <laughs> Never done it before in your life. Never done it
1: before. So my second month in the car business, I delivered 21 cars. My third month was 24 cars. And it was something that I just put my head down because I needed to make money. Yes. And, and I wanted to do well at something. I always say, if you're going to do something, do it with your full ass, not half of it. Mm-hmm. So I put, all my, I put all my energy into it to learn it as quickly as possible. When you look at guys like Tony Robbins, he talks about accelerated learning. So if you want to be a good speech writer, write a thousand speeches rather than spending a thousand hours on it. Write a thousand speeches and practice your way out of it. And this is kind of what I did. I accelerated my learning. I'd listen to a lot of the veteran guys and what they would say and how they would approach things. And I developed a, a process in which I would sell vehicles to people and making sure that they were well-informed and it was full transparency. And it worked for me. So within eight months, I was uh, approached by the owner and he said, Hey, I got a chance to look at your resume that I didn't look at before. And I realized you did some process improvement when you worked at the bank. He's like, can you help me rebuild the processes for a couple of the departments here in in the dealership. So I said to him, sure. So I started working on it. And then I took him to this training that we were going to. And the trainer at the place said, listen, if you really want to affect change, you need to give the person authority that's making all these changes. So we went out for lunch halfway through the course. And he sat there and he said to me, effective immediately, you're a sales manager. So I'm talking nine, 10 months in the business, and I became a sales manager already. And, you know, I had already sold quite a few Quite a few vehicles within my first time here, and I did that for another twelve years as a, as a sales manager. And we became, you know, one of the top selling uh, uh, dealerships in Ontario. We had number one customer service for a very very long time. Uh, and then in November of two thousand seventeen, the general manager left, and I became the general manager.
0: And that's so Erinwood Ford. Erinwood Ford, yeah,
1: yeah, Aaronwood Ford. So it's been now almost five years as general manager. We've done quite a few things uh, since, since I became general manager. We made a lot of changes around here in terms of personnel and adding departments. And uh, a couple notable things that we did was uh, we set up a, an export division. So we actually have a wholesale U.S. dealership to be able to offer customers more money for their trades and, and expand our network outside of, uh, of, of Ontario and outside of Canada. And uh, recently we just purchased Direct Nissan last year as another acquisition under the Raymond Auto Group. And uh, it was something that I had a big part in, in terms of you know, looking at the metrics and working with the owner Dave on it. And we've expanded the business and it, it's, it's been wonderful. Like I, I come to work every day and I learn something every day, which is, which is great. And I always want to do better and improve. So to me, it's a challenge because you have the autonomy to be able to affect a lot of change. So it makes it exciting for me.
0: I gotta tell you, it was very exciting when I found out you were purchasing Nissan there because uh, now it expanded my options as far. Am I going for a Ford GT? Am I gonna go for a Shelby? Maybe a GTR now? Uh, the 270, to, which is it's, the- It's the 400Z now. We're up to the 400Z, yeah, right? 400Z. We're stepping Lots- you up, buddy. Yes.
1: <laughs> it's funny because when
0: I was growing up, it was the 270, you know, and those cars yep. are just awesome. And yep. uh, it's, it's funny, you know, every company has its own distinct cars and Ford and Nissan, you know, apples and oranges, but it's, it's cool that you can offer a breadth of product that way. I, I got to ask you at what's going through my mind right now is if you had not had that conversation about that potential job with Chrysler, first of all, when you're leaving the bank, what, what the heck were you thinking? Like, what was your game plan at this point? You didn't have anything lined up. What if you never had that conversation about Chrysler and let's say that other job didn't pan through, what the heck were you planning to do?
1: Well, you know what? I have enough trust that, that God will put me down the right road. And uh, ultimately sometimes in life, things happen for a reason because I always thought, you know what? Great. I'll stay with the bank, stay with Moneris. i you know, become a senior manager, I do my MBA, get them to sponsor me for it, eventually become a vice president, get a, get a good uh, retirement and, and, and call, it, call it a day, right? But being able to see the other side of the coin in, uh, let's say, running a business, because, you know, in effect, that's what I do. I run, run two dealerships and, and the US part of it. it. It gives you a different outlook. And the corporate world is, is, is a different cat compared to this. I have way more fun doing this. Yes, there are more problems associated with it, but it gives you a little bit more excitement than saying, you know, I'm the vice president of uh, processing for North America or something along those lines, right? It's a different world. And yeah, what was I thinking? I just thought, you know, at that point, let me take an opportunity because it got to the point where when I was at that job, I didn't have the same uh, support that I did from senior management as they made a few changes and they moved out some really good people that were putting you on the fast track. I was on the fast track to become a senior manager there. I used to have meetings with some of the senior managers. We'd have coffee dates every week as part of a progression plan, which is great. I mean, a lot of my success in the car business has come from what I learned at school and also at Bank of Montreal and at Moneris. There are a lot of things that I learned there and how to organize and technology that I would not have done close to as good as I would have if I didn't have that strong base. So what I was thinking, I was thinking about expanding my life because I figured that if I was going to be consulting on my own, I would have some freedoms that I could take the chance. You know, at at that time, my dad had just passed away and um, a lot of things I needed to make changes. And I still had to make sure my mom was well taken care of. So there are things that I wanted to make changes to make sure that I was there for her. So that afforded me the ability to make sure she was okay, make sure that. The house was taken care of because it was a pretty large house that we had. And it was just me and her then at that point. So it allowed me to help her get to the next stage, allowed me to get to the next stage. So there are a lot of reasons why it happened. And, you know, I don't, I don't look back. One thing I always, I always tell people, I have this conversation with my wife regularly, is that I don't regret anything because there's a reason why it happened. You have to take the good out of it and learn what it is you need to learn out of it to understand why it happened. Because you can look back and regret lots of things in life, but what is it going to do for you? It's going to do absolutely nothing. It just makes you feel like, you know, this pit in, the, in, the, in your stomach where like, oh, geez, I didn't do this. I didn't take this opportunity. You know what it happened for a reason. What did you learn from it? I learned from it next time. I'm going to look at it this way. I'm going to look at it this way to allow me to make a better, well-informed decision and to make the decisions that are going to propel you forward rather than backwards, right? There's always a learning experience with it.
0: I got to tell you, I remember one of my memories of real estate is I was a young boy. Let's say I was 11, maybe. And this person, you know, was talking about real estate, you know, and I'm listening in, right? And they're talking about this property and the property that they could have acquired 10 years before that. And they said, you have any idea how much this property is worth now? And they start bawling out their eyes. And the spill of regret is just flowing out of them. And I'm at 11 years old and I'm saying to myself, I never want to be like that ever, never, ever, because you can't turn back the hands of time. But remember that experience and hopefully you'll make better decisions in the future. I'm reasoning like this at 11. okay? And uh, some things just stick in your mind, you know, and it's amazing now when you're talking about your story and I always say when you're hearing other people's stories, I could say that I started thinking about my own story. I'm sure the the viewers right now, the millions and millions that are listening at home, think about their own stories. And I started to think to myself, wow, George and I are actually so much more similar than I even realized it. Because the course of your life really came from one conversation almost in the car sense, you know? I I remember why I came to Cormans. I told you the story before that there was a mediator that was renting space at a law firm that I was working at. And I mentioned to him on an offshoot one time I saw him, I hadn't seen him in months, telling him I'm planning to go open up my own law firm one day, or I'm going to uh, maybe join a law firm and eventually, you know, you know, grow a practice and take over whatever I, I planned at the time. I relate I all this stuff to him. And as I was planning to go and start my own thing, I get a phone call from this guy, David Corman saying, Hey, we have a mutual friend. He said that we should speak. And I'm like, what? Really? And it was like literally at the last, last moment, and that one conversation I had led to this conversation and I had spoken to like 20 plus different lawyers about their law firms and nothing ever felt right. And I said, you know what? I can't deal with other people. I just want to do my own thing. And I could connect with the right person at the last second and him and his cousin, Jerry, and they're like the greatest gentleman I can ask for. He's the best partner. David's the best partner a, a man could ever ask for. And it's amazing how the universe kind of brought us together on one conversation. And that changed the total course of my life, his life. And it's pretty freaking cool. It definitely
1: is. You know, it's funny. You have to be the right, you know, they say it's the right, it's the right time. Right. So, you know, it's the right time for it, but you also have to be the right person at the right time for it.
0: Like imagine we were doing our transaction together and let's say you were ill or I was ill or another emergency came up for one of us and somebody else was handling it. And we hadn't connected the way we had. Mm -hmm. If we don't have that one experience, we don't come together the way we do and form a lifelong Friendship, brotherhood—it's unbelievable. That is true. You're right, 100. percent So now I got to ask you a question because it's always bugged me, and I'm going to use a very, very bad metaphor. But right now I'm binge watching Breaking Bad. Okay, you know, you're familiar with the show? Absolutely. Very good. You're, so, you're, like you're so
1: far, you're so far behind. How can we only binge watching that now? That's like you know. I'm busy
0: ago. closing deals for people like you that <laughs> I don't get to go and enjoy myself and watch TV in my off time. You know? No. Just yeah, just- yeah. 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 Just joking. I, 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 now that people are saying, you know, you really remind me of Better Call Saul. I don't know if that's a compliment anymore. I'm starting to get a little suspicious about that. Not one. too sure. Not too sure, buddy. So let's take, for example, the people. I'm not endorsing this under any circumstances as a lawyer, obviously. But people go and open up a meth lab and, you know, doing their meth thing, whatever. Fine. But the person, you know, Walter, Walter White, you know, uh, you go and start your meth thing. The one thing you're not doing is you're not going to use your own product, you know? So that being said, in my horrible metaphor, you're a car guy. You said you love cars. General manager of a Ford, Nissan dealership. Where the heck are the supercars and where's the spilling out of cars? To me, when I watch you in action, I know you get that you love cars, but it's like a widget. Like you're selling widgets. You could be selling these cups for all I know. You're running a business like a business. It's not thought of as a super fan. It's thought of as a business first and foremost. Absolutely. It's thought
1: of a business first and foremost, because the thing is you have to make sure you have the right processes and people in place to run it, regardless of what you're selling. Now, obviously you have to love the product that you're selling. That, that's that's, a, that's a, a golden rule. If you don't love what you're selling and you don't believe in it, then you shouldn't be selling. Number one. Number two, again, yeah, you have to have the right people and processes and you have to treat it like a business. You have to look at your return on investment. You have to look at making sure you're taking care of your people properly because that goes an absolutely long way in, uh, in making sure that your business is successful. And you have to make sure you're taking care of your customers as well, too, because they're the people that will come back and buy. And, and you want to make sure you, you foster and keep those relationships going, going well, uh, too. So, yeah. I may not have all the supercars and I don't get me wrong. I, 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 love driving up to last week. I was driving a Shelby GT 350 right? Took it home for the weekend, went to a car show with it. So I really enjoy doing that. But at the same time, I try not to get emotionally invested because you know, it can detract you from making sure you're taking care of the important parts of your business. Those things are just a fringe benefit in my eyes.
0: I got to tell you and uh, no disrespect to other dealerships out there but I was straight up with you. I didn't go looking for it and judging you as a friend when I've been to Aaron Wood several times. And I got to say, uh, I've told you this on several occasions. I'm really impressed from the moment you walk in the experience, as far as how people treat you, depending on where, what you're there for. And it's very clear that everybody understands the role, the team cohesiveness, the way the, way the facility is built out, state-of-the-art, like I was very shocked and blown away at the level of every, every part of the experience from when I walk into what it looks like to how the people act to how you feel from, till the time that you leave. Uh, none of this is a coincidence, is it?
1: No, I, I wouldn't say that it is. Uh, that it is. You know, definitely when the building was being built, the owner, Dave, is a, is a very active participant in the business and he plays a, a pretty big role here. Uh, he's very big into charity. Um, making sure that things are easy for customers is one of the things that we work on very hard to make sure that we have a good reputation. And we've built that we've built that over the years as a as a as almost a marketing tool, but not a marketing tool because you have to have a good reputation in this business if it's going to take you far. So there's a lot of thought that went into the way that we do things, and there are certain things that we're dead against. Uh, and I'll give you a specific example. So. At our stores, there are obviously inventory shortages, right? You've seen it. You've come by here uh, when you had your vehicle cleaned recently and saw that, wow, normally our, our lot's completely full and there's not a lot of cars on here. So what some dealers are doing is they're charging a, a market adjustment above MSRP. And that's something that we're dead against because unless it's, you know, a special car like a GT500 or or something that that, you know, potentially has uh you know special things to it it's one thing that we uh that we make sure that we don't overcharge people for because we understand the relationship that we want to foster for the future so we try to do things as as best as possible and as transparent as possible for people and that's what you'll see here we're very selective in the people that we have here a lot of a lot of the employees at both stores have been there for a long time. Some of my sales guys have been here for over 18 years. I've been here myself for 16. So it's it's one thing that uh, longevity in the car business is not well known, uh, but our dealership it is.
0: And I got to tell you, like Ford is, uh, well, I may not be driving a Ford currently, you know, yet, I, I, a, lot, yet I, I, a lot of the products, I I part of the reason I've never test driven a Mustang is because I don't know if I could ever leave after I drive it. Like, <laughs> I, I, I just love them. They're just... Oh, I just love them. But um, because there's so many exciting products, like you read about the Bronco and the relaunch of the Bronco, where the F-150 is, you know, best-selling trucks. You read a lot of stories, especially in the States, about those giant markups that you're talking about. There's no inventory whatsoever. You got some of the hottest products going. There's dealerships that are getting Bronco centers. They're going to have giant spaces devoted to it. So one of my first thoughts is like, how do you not jump on this bandwagon? You know, if everybody else is doing it, how do you guys not?
1: Well, don't get me wrong. It's tempting. It's tempting to say, Hey, great. We're going to throw a $4,000 market adjustment on there and you can get it. But when you think about things from a long-term perspective, and that's how we treat this business, we're not here just for the money. Now we're here to make sure that we can run this business for many, many years to come and have people start here and continue to work here and support their families. Well, And we actually have quite a few people here that work and their kids work here now too. So the generations are taking over as well. So we want to be able to continue to run this business well into the future. It's it's not a, it's not a short-term prospect. So if you take that and you extrapolate what an MSRP market adjustment would do. So let's imagine Jonathan, you walk in and I say to you, I know you from nowhere, so I'm not going to give you any sort of special chosen lawyer prices. And I figure, you know what, you're a lawyer, you can afford the market adjustment, right? So, I tack on an $8,000 adjustment to a transit, let's say, for example, because they're hot, right? Amazon is buying them up like crazy. They need them for fulfilling all the orders that they're getting because many people are still shopping from home. It's a convenient thing. So I sell that to you. You decide as a business that you're going to finance it for four years, right? But in those right. four years, you put on like 300,000 kilometers on it. and You want to trade it in with one year left in your finance. So let's say you owe... You know, let's say 14 grand, but the vehicle is worth three because of the kilometers and the abuse, right? So there's that $11,000 spread there, which of, of which 8,000 was contributed by the dealership because of the market adjustment. So if you're going to be thinking about things from a longevity perspective, you don't want to create a hurdle for the future business that you could have, right? So this is how we think about it. I don't think it's necessarily ethic, uh, ethical, Um, some people do it, you know what, to each their own, if they want to run their business that way, but we have very strong feelings about making sure that we're fair.
0: It blows my mind in a lot of businesses, whether you're a restaurant, a grocery store, a lawyer, um, a car dealership, a barber, whoever it is. In my mind, you're one of two things. You're either seeing a customer as one-offs and let's just gouge and get whatever we can and move on to the next person. Don't care if we ever come back or I want to build relationships. And it saddens me how few businesses actually want to build relationships in this day and age. I can't tell you how many times I've gone to car dealerships and nobody's come and greeted me, how I've seen ads. I I messaged out, nobody got back. It's like somebody is giving you, you know, a lead. Leads are the most important thing in business. It should be treated like with gold and yet People don't seem to care. It blows my mind. And then the ones that really want to build relationships, I think that's the exception to the rule. And those are the businesses that are going to end up thriving. So no matter how much competition you have out there, and there's so many of us doing everything, there's very few of us actually that believe in the client service, the customer experience of it, period. Agreed. And
1: that's what gives you the distinct advantage over people, right? It, It really does. Because let's face it, if say, for example, yourself and myself didn't get along so well, when we did our transaction with you, regardless of the conversation that we had on the phone. Keeping in
0: mind, again, we were on posing
1: sides here. Right, right. (laughs) Um, You know, we may never have have gotten together and do it, but the way that things went, the relationship that we ended up fostering, the way that things were handled on our first transaction that we did with you as our lawyer, you know, it just gave me the motivation to continue to do it. You know, I send you an email, I would get an answer back quickly. I get phone calls back. I would get... Um, you know, updates as to what was happening. And I was getting it from you at the time. Um, and, you know, even after that, when I've done some other transactions with your people there, they always kind of knew, like, listen, this you make sure that, uh, that George is well taken care of and, and everybody delivered. So it really does go a long way when you think about how the person feels. And I tell that to my guys here all the time. A person will always remember what, how you feel when you do a transaction, not always what you say.
0: It goes a long way. I, I think one of the rudest things in business is when somebody does act as an introducer as a referral source and they send you business and you don't say thank you. I, it blows my mind. I could tell you, let's say I know professionals that I, I'm not involved in their areas, whatever they're doing, whether it's law or it's whatever, the, you know, whatever, you know, whatever service they're offering or goods. And let's say 10 people end up working with them and not want they don't bother to pick up the phone, text message, email, whatever messenger, just to write a one-liner. Hey, Barry messaged me really appreciate it. I got to tell you, if there's one thing I religiously do and I pride myself on anybody that ever does an introduction for me, even if it's the 20th introduction, I send 20 thank yous. It is so important. Somebody going out of their way to act as your advertising source, your marketing source, I believe thank yous are really, really important and manners are unfortunately not followed too much in our society but they should be. You're 100% right about that one.
1: There's there's a lot of people out there that don't un, don't understand that etiquette and I mean, you know, maybe it's upbringing, maybe it's culture, I don't know, but it really does go a, a very long way. Um, I had referred somebody to to get something done uh, a few months back and you know the handoff went great and you know, just up to last week, I ran into the person that I referred the services to and said, Hey, what, what happened? Oh, it was all well taken care of. And it turns out that they got way better than they thought they were going to, but I never got a thank you. Right. And I was like, really, I think I'm going to refer you something again.
0: One, one time I didn't say a thank you. And the person called me on it and I said, I'm in the middle of conversing with them still. It's been a couple of days. I just want to make sure where we're at. And then I was going to let you know because either they're going to go with me or not go with me. But I I I I am kind of this superstitious thing. I just want to know sometimes, depending on where the stage is at. But again, you you got you got to do it. It's just, it's people like if you listen listening to this, whatever industry you're in, think about it now. Think people who did that for you always say a thank you. It doesn't mean that you have to send them a gift card or whatever. People just like to hear your voice or get a message back. But that being said, I could tell you some of my longest standing clients and even referral sources for that matter, became loyal because they were disloyal at some point. They ended up going somewhere else for whatever reason. Maybe, you know, we had a hundred things together and one thing didn't go well for whatever reason. And you know what? Maybe it'll be me. I'm human. I'm not perfect. Even though people think I'm a robot, I am not. Mia Copa, that's the way it is. Or maybe somebody was like $10 cheaper. I don't know. But they have such a lousy experience that then they realize, wait a minute, all those phone calls, emails, I didn't get charged for that. They were always available. I think I had it pretty good, you know? So some of our, I would say, our best advocates for marketing are the professionals that are competing against us, give them a worse experience. And then they realize, wow, I had it really, really good. Because they always say the grass is greener on the other side. But sometimes people say, you know what? I just feel like a change or I don't like his tone today, or I just, I'm in a pissy mood. So I'm just going to go elsewhere for the heck of it. But when they come back, then they stay forever generally. So, and just be open to it. And the other thing I will say to that is even if they do leave or they never even want business, always build that relationship. Not like, Hey, you've never sent me anything. or Why are you working with somebody else? I'll never utter those words. If we're cool and we have a relationship, I feel like it'll come full circle. That's my logic. True. Grass
1: may be greener, but the water bill is higher, right? There's always some, there's always some cost to it.
0: So that big set of our experience go, I got to shop on cars here, but I got to ask you, one of the things that hit me and I kind of had a cross thing on it was Ford, Nissan. And, 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 because a lot of dealerships in the car business, correct me if I'm wrong, but they tend to build in their one mold. Like a Ford dealership will have several Ford dealerships, like Hyundai, same thing, for example. And then when they start branching out, You know, you'll find this one group and they'll have, you know, seven different brands. All of a sudden it becomes a whole empire with it. What was the logic to go from such a product? Like, does it compete against one another or is it actually offering more of a breadth of product to your clients? What do you feel? So, I
1: mean, part of the reason that we decided to go with the Nissan store, um, because we were also looking at a a Chrysler store at the same time. Part of the reason why we did that is that back in 2018, Ford decided they were not making any more cars to dance. Correct, other than, other than the Mustang, that was it. So that was the only thing, they got rid of the, the Fusion, they got rid of the Fiesta, they got rid of the Focus, um, and they were all very well-selling lines, like those, those lines sold very well. Uh, but they thought you know, that their market share, people were going more towards trucks and SUVs, not necessarily that they were wrong, um, but we found that we had a bunch of customers here, it made up 38% of our sales cars, so, of course, for us, we had to make quite a few, uh, quite a few adjustments um, in terms of trying to switch to selling more SUVs and trucks to pick up that business. So we did that successfully. However, we still had a complement of customers who wanted a car, who wanted a smaller car for their kids who are now driving. And, and this is part of the reason why we decided on the Nissan store, because when we started looking at it, we're like, well, let's, let's take a look. They have cars. It gives us the opportunity to sell to our existing customers, so we have that relationship already built. So it's, it's an easy transition. They had, the central was redesigned. uh, They redesigned the frontier. They redesigned uh, the pathfinder. uh, They have an electric iteration coming to Aria. The leaf is being redesigned. And I just actually literally went to a meeting two months ago where the stuff that's coming down from, from Nissan over the next three years is some crazy stuff. It's going to be some exciting cars. And then you also have the 400 Z that's coming. So so that's part of the reason why we decided to do it, because it added to the compliment that we had here. Sure, if we had the opportunity to buy a Ford store uh, now, we still will, because it's easy to keep within the brand, because you understand the process well. But you don't have that offering where you're able to pick up the other part of the market. So that's, that was the reason behind it. And, uh, you know, Nissan has been pretty great to work with. From a corporate level, I get lots of support. I, I, I fostered some good relationships there with the regional managers and our, our district managers and things like that. And, uh, you know, we understand what it is to be a franchisee. You know, you follow most of the rules and you, you fight back when you need to. But the majority
0: of the time, if you're, if you're just wanting to run a successful business, they'll support you. But, George, that being said, man, like most people cannot, and even in your industry, cannot do what you're doing at one dealership, you were already, I've known you for long enough before Nissan came into the picture, you were already swamped out of your eyeballs. How the heck did you bring another dealership into the fold and essentially double your work? And you're still standing as far as uh, doing what you're doing in your career wise in the automotive plus real estate, plus you have a family. How the heck are you doing that, man?
1: You know, I I just made some adjustments. Uh, That's the best way to say it because I had to let go of some of the things that I did that were that were sales manager job, for example. And I had to take more of a bird's eye view of the businesses rather than working in the business. You have to work on the business a bit more. So I had to take some step ba- steps back and, you know, a few key individuals here, i made some good hires uh, in, into the organization that were able to complement and take on those roles. So it took that off my plate, which allows me to be able to do that more and, know obviously that the more you do things the better you're going to get at it and and it worked out it worked out pretty well for me so far I actually feel less stressed now (laughs) with the extra responsibility because I have good people in place that are going to help move that forward on my direction
0: How how important is your team at Ford and Nissan respectively as far as the people you put into place could you be doing what you're doing essentially without your key players by your side
1: no, of course not. Of course not. Because then you'd be taking on that onus. Because I've, I've played so many roles in dealership, I have a, an, innate, an innate understanding of those roles and know how to do them. So, you know, a sales manager is sick. I can run desk deals. I can go downstairs and run them and talk to customers and sell a car. I can help out in the service wherever is possible, things like that. So, so you know, having those key people to do that well gives me a reason not to have to worry about it. I don't have so. to double check on it anymore.
0: Let me ask you a question. I, mean, I had it's funny how organically thoughts come to our minds, and I think of private episodes of the Chosen Life. Uh, Muhammad Fakih was on the president and of a uh, Paramount Fine Foods, great great uh, restaurant brand, and he was saying that in his mind that the employee, your team members, are in fact more important than the customers, and his logic was without having the good team in place and without making your employees a priority, then they cannot give the customer the best experience. Because if you make the customer the priority, but you don't give that respect to the employees to be able to give them the tools and et cetera, the customer inevitably will not get that good experience. What do you think right. of that?
1: I think there's some truth to what he's saying. However, you know, ultimately without the customers, you wouldn't have a place for people to work at. So it's almost right. like a chicken and egg kind of deal. Yes. Um, I, I think it, it definitely does go both ways. I think they're both very, very important. But yes, you do definitely need your staff to be able to deliver a quality service that's going to continue to retain and or attract new customers. So there's that thing you have to struggle with all the time. It's, it's very important to hire good people and you know, hire good people and pay them well. That's another, that's another side, uh, side of it. You know, there are lots of people out there who are totally underutilized and underpaid. Um, but I mean, that's probably, uh, that's probably, a, another podcast.
0: I, I could do a whole <laughs> podcast on the fact that there is a talent drain right now. Yeah. And I've talked to leaders in all industries, not just in my profession, not just in your profession, but in general, it seems it's hard to find good talent, motivated, loyal, You know, it is just amazing out there. It seems that a lot of people on the job market, they're saying, oh, there's no jobs. There's no jobs, no jobs. They don't want to work, but they want to get paid top dollar and they have zero experience and they maybe don't even have the knowledge. It blows my mind because you and I come from a generation or generation still relatively where you come in, look, I don't have the experience. Maybe I have some knowledge. I don't care what I'm making at this point. I'm going to bust my butt for you and I'm going to build it up and I'm going to show you that... Was how I was brought up, that's how you were brought up in the year 2022. That's not how they're being brought up at all, yeah, or not I, for the I, most part.
1: I agree with you 100%. And I, I see it when we interview, uh, some you know, new people, let's call it like people we're trying to bring into the fold for certain positions. And uh, yeah, there's definitely a big spectrum, uh, but sometimes you'll find that one that you can work with that allows you to move that forward. And eventually, most people are going to have to fall into line and be able to work hard because then they're going to get overlooked all the time. So people are going to have to learn and make those adjustments in their life. But you're right. Intellectual capital is absolutely a huge, huge thing because there are lots of people that have lots of knowledge in an organization and sometimes losing them will put you a step backwards rather than putting you a step forwards, Right. And uh, getting, getting the right person and getting that work ethic is, is very invaluable. Uh, these days because everybody thinks they could be a TikTok superstar and you know work 3 hours a day and make $10,000 a month it's just not reality <laughs> right like I, I i always tell people like you know great you you, you want to be a TikTok superstar you got to recognize that in the beginning you're going to have to probably put in 80 90 100 hours a week branding yourself right putting out good content quality content that people are going to want to to uh, watch building your audience there's so many things and you, you've done it with, with, uh, with your podcast, right? It's something something that you started slowly, slowly, slowly. And, and you continue to build it. But the reality is over time, the same way, if you start a business over time, it's going to get easier and it's going to look like you're working four hours a day. And it gets easy that way because of the fact that you've taken the time to foster that right process and build that good foundation. A lot of people don't understand that
0: they don't, well, they can't see that time frame in their minds. Look at our, each of our respective, it's funny you're saying this and people I brought on from all walks of life on, on the show, it's following a constant theme as far as hard work, perseverance, putting it in. You have been in the car industry for how long? 16 years now, 16 years. And how long were you in the banking industry for? Uh, 11, 11. Okay. So we're combining those years also, because you are bringing a lot of that life and work experience, what you brought to the automotive industry, obviously. I'm coming up to my 20th year after being called to the bar. And podcasting, I've done it now. I'm coming up to a little past six months. It's funny because I did blogging before and I built up an infrastructure that way. And it's funny though, it's not not the same thing, but it kind of is. And when you have kind of the experience as far as reaching out to the public and how you're putting out content, maybe instead of written, it's spoken as far as how you're doing social media, but there's a lot of the same formulas, but something was done. There is experience coming into it, certainly. And I can tell you sitting at the just law itself, uh, I was a year 10 and I was still spinning my wheels, but I said, keep your head down, keep learning as much as you can, soak up as a sponge. It'll come, it'll come, it'll come. And I kept telling myself this, but uh, best story I'll tell you, you know what? I always answer a story with a story. How are you gonna like this one? I had somebody once uh, interview with me for an articling position, okay? Many moons ago, many, many moons ago. So the guy comes into my office, sits down, puts his feet up on my desk, looks at me like this, says to me, so tell me, how do I get your job? And I look at him, I said, You can start off by getting your effing feet off my desk before I cut them off. I said, I don't know what jungle or where the heck you came from, but, buddy, you need to learn some manners here because you're never going to get a job with that kind of attitude. And I read him the right act, and then we kind of, like, laughed it off a bit. And I said, buddy, uh, you got to smarten up, man, because I'm going to tell you the ABCs. You know what, George? Tell me if you agree or disagree. I tell people there's a very simple formula on how to get a job. I believe that if I go to interview for any job, I don't care what, I can't go be a brain surgeon, for example, but if it's something in my wheelhouse, I'm going to get it. Very simple. I come in, I say, look, this is who I am, and this is what I'm about. This is who you are as a company. This is who you are, Mr. Interviewer or Mrs. Interviewer. This is what you've done. This is what you're about. This is why we fit well together. And I would like to show you this. You know what? Bring me in for a day. Bring me for a week. Don't even pay me. I don't care. I'll show you what I'm about. And if you don't like it, you can kick me out at any point. But I want this job. I believe I'll be better than any candidate. No one is going to outwork me. I pick up things fast. I will try my best for you. I want this. I'm devoted. I'm here. This is the job I want. I think I'm going to get it. What do you think?
1: 100%. 100%.
0: Not complicated, right? If you took
1: the time to learn about the person, you took the time to learn about the company, and you said, listen, these are the skills that I have. And this is how I can benefit you. And I'm going to give you some free time just so you can try me out.
0: It, it, to me, it's a no brainer. Folks, you know where I learned this from, actually? This is how George met his wife to be. He came to her and said, honey, it's nice to meet you. This is who I am. And this is who you are. And this is why I think we would work well, well together and why I would serve your organization well. And she gave a second date. And here they are together. Happily married.
1: I, after. I thought that you were my wife to me, but that's okay. That's another episode.
0: <laughs> real estate. Oh, no, actually, I met my wife through a friend. <laughs> we'll get to her in a moment. But in all seriousness, real estate. Again, anybody doing what you're doing at Ford would be up to their eyeballs. Then you're doing a second dealership and you got your family. And then deep into real estate. We touched upon it before. You're talking about real estate rangers, correct? You are the VP of investor relations. You talked about how you got into real estate, but my friend, that is beyond a full-time job as far as finding opportunities, as far as fixing them up, tenting them, flipping them. And there's one thing I could say with you and Eddie, you're very similar minded. What I was drawn to you guys, everything you touch, it feels like turns to gold. You guys just have the secret sauce. You get it. And I thought like, it must've fallen for the sky, but no, you took the courses, you did the investigatory work. Like you are very, when it comes to cars and how you're buying and selling cars, you're buying and selling real estate. You're very, very logical. You're looking at everything. And did it come natural to you or was, was it a lot of pain along the way?
1: No, I think I've always uh, thought very logically. And, And one thing that I learned early on is never put emotion against it. Look at the numbers, look at the offerings look at your process, make your decisions based on that, rather than saying, I feel some way. Because, you know, you could feel something really good, and you got a gut feeling about something, but if the numbers don't support it, you really don't have that backup. Now, don't get me wrong, there's certain circumstances looking at, you know, various stocks that they have been able to affect uh, moving, like GameStop and things like that, that was affected, and yes, people have gone along with it, but there was no logic there. Right. So, right. so, you know, for me, it was always about let's not have emotion when you're doing it. It came pretty, pretty easily in terms of the way that my brain works. My brain works in a process. So, if you say to me, Great, how do we need to do this? I start thinking a solution in my brain right away. It's like I feel like it's almost like a flow chart that happens in my brain to see how everything is going. Um, so, it worked really well. So, I was able to use my skills there. Then, being the VP of investor relations for, for uh, real estate rangers, I'm good with people. I can speak to people about anything. I can speak to them about a myriad of things, right? And uh, it made it easy to be able to say to people, listen, we have this, this is what the project's going to do. Are you interested in investing? This is gonna be the benefit to you, right? And we show them our past performance. The one thing though that I can say is that, you know, yes, Eddie and myself, we did go out and we learned the courses and we and we read lots of books on real estate. There were obviously trials and tribulations, I remember staying up till five in the morning and Eddie used to call me the slave driver. And it's like, let's get this done. So that we hit our timelines, right? You got to push yourself sometimes too. And you got to get outside of your comfort zone in terms of saying, great, I'm going to be sitting in this bathroom pit, rebuilding a bathroom because the floor caved in and nobody wants to touch a property because they're scared of uh, the way it looks. And, and uh, we kind of try to educate ourselves on that. And then also we try to build a really good team. So part of what we did was interviewing property managers to see who was a good fit for us and who would be a good fit for the tenants as we had taken those uh, properties and moved them into you know an active business stage. So that was one thing. We met with several real estate agents. So originally we started buying it up north in Barry and Aurelia, right? Because the one property that you were opposing counsel on was one of our properties off of Dunlop Street that you helped us uh, that you helped the the other the buyer with right? I can't um,
0: confirm or deny that, but you can say it. Sure.
1: Yes. So, so, you know, we were really big into that market as it was growing, but we went out there and we met with real estate agents and we would say, great. Hey, you know what? Tell us your experience in multifamily and, in, and investment. And I can tell you this, there were not a lot of agents out there that understood metrics and net operating income and how your cap rate affected the multifamily property and commercial properties. A lot of them didn't have that understanding about force appreciation and, and all those other factors that, that came into line, but a big part of it was building that team, so we found good real estate agents, we found good property management that we had um, that we had a good relationship with, and it was symbiotic because you know as they started to do things for us, we helped them improve their process and they helped us improve our process. and then as a result of that, I always spoke to prospective uh, landlords that they were approaching for new business, and I would tell them about our experience with them and it allowed them to get more business. so they took Really good care of us because there was that exchange and there was that reciprocity that happened, right? So it made that part easy. And one of the things I think that made us successful in doing what uh, what we did is that the car business, you know, typically is closed on a Sunday. So Eddie and myself would call each other up on Friday night and say, "Okay, let's go driving for dollars." This is what we used to call it: driving for dollars. Driving for dollars. Driving for dollars. So I'd say, "Okay, I'm off this Sunday. Let's drive up to Arley and let's go knock on doors." So literally we would drive and we would go look at some properties and we'd say, okay, great. Let's find them. The ugliest house on the nicest street. Right. And we go knock on the door. You guys tenants. Are you the owner? And we'd ask them questions like, you know, how's your tenant? How old are they? How, how, how old is the landlord? Are they looking to sell? And we get numbers from them. And, and it was kind of funny because we were, it was probably like our third or fourth time doing it. Cause we do it. We do it religiously, probably two Sundays a month. And there was this older gentleman that we pulled up and, uh, and we, uh, we saw him sweeping the driveway. So I walked up to him and I introduced myself and I said to him, uh, you know, are, you, are you a tenant here? He says, no, actually I own the place. I'm like, wow, this is great because normally you're running into tenants all the time and you gotta get the numbers from them, right? And uh, we started chatting with him and he said, you know what? I own a, quite a few more properties around here. And he's 84 years old at the time, actually, ironically right? He says, let me take you inside and let me show you a few of them. So we went into the one property. He was a carpenter by trade. He did beautiful work inside the place. His properties were well-maintained. He had rounded edges instead of square edges for his walls. Like he, he cared about making sure he had a quality product. And uh, he says, let me get in the car. Let me show you the other one. So we drove around and we looked at another six or seven properties. So after that, you know, Eddie, Eddie, the way his brain works automatically is mathematics. Let's, let's go back and let's run it through the meat grinder. So he created this whole spreadsheet that was called the meat grinder, we call it. And it would take in, you know, appreciation over time. It would take into account any sort of um, uh, things that we'd have to spend money on to force appreciate the property to the level that we needed to, to raise the tenant profile and, and things like that. And he ran it through. He's like, oh, you know, let's go back up and let's meet with, with, with uh, the gentleman named Bill right? So we went back up several times and we met with Bill numerous times, like probably a dozen times. And we finally bought all of Bill's properties from them two years ago when he was 91 years old. We chased him down <laughs> for seven years. And, he's, and the funny thing is he's still alive. So he's 96 now. And he is one of our tenants because he continued to live in this place that we bought from him. So it's kind of interesting how that worked, and having those relationships with people and, you know, just going out and finding out information and putting yourself out there made a big difference to saying, great, we didn't acquire these 17 doors by chance. We worked towards it. And even other things when we're doing work on properties, the way we treated the plumbers and the guys that worked for us automatically got us referrals. So we're good friends with uh, one, of, uh, one of the gentlemen in, in Aurelia as well too, And we ended up purchasing four of his properties through the plumber because his family didn't want to continue. His daughters didn't want to continue the real estate business. He wanted to retire. And we ended up buying some of his properties. So it was those relationships that we forged that allowed us to move forward. And I wouldn't necessarily say it came in an easy way, but it it comes naturally because of all the things that you do ahead of time to prepare yourself for the success. You got to put in the groundwork. Right. It's just like a house. You got to have a good foundation before you get to the top. Right. So that was what we utilized there. And, uh, you know, Eddie's strong command of, uh, of the metrics and, and market conditions and, and looking forward allowed us to make very sound decisions on properties. Right. We got into the U S and we bought properties there when the market had bottomed out a bit. We were very successful with those. It's a different kettle of fish. So we had to take the time to learn that process You got to get acquainted with it first, get, get your, get your feet wet that way, learn about it that way, learn as much as you can about it before getting into it, because it will help you, you know, kind of bypass some of those pitfalls that everybody falls into.
0: As you're saying so many thoughts are going through my mind and I'm going to give you the three top ones that popped in my head as as you told me. And I love that driving for dollars, by the way, that's amazing. Uh, Number one, Eddie, I love him, but he frustrates me because it has to make the dollar sense. I've talked to him before. and We're talking about opportunities in general. And he's like, no, it doesn't work. And I'm like, Eddie, I'm telling you, man, this thing's going to hit for sure. It makes sense. He's like, nope, I ran it through the numbers. Not good enough. You know, he has this thing and it he goes, he's like that guy, you know, at the roulette wheel and he's got the system and you got to follow the system to win. And as soon as you, and I've seen those guys, they're winning for two hours. They deviate from the system once and they lose it all you got to stick to the system. I get that. So that's point number one. Number two, and we kind of touched upon it, but it's kind of funny. We were supposed to come together originally, and I was supposed to actually be your lawyer because everybody introduces everybody. So your realtor at the time, Nazir Manji, I was also looking after him and his clients. So Nazir actually said to you guys, turns out afterwards, I got the lawyer for you. And you guys like, no, 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 I already have my lawyer. That's fine. But we should have been together anyways. So again, everything in
1: its proper time, my friend.
0: The, everything happens the way it comes together. It's just, it's it's absolutely nuts. Point number three, and I believe that you'll agree with this one as well. I can tell you, having been a lawyer now, you know, for close to 20 years, dealing with many different types of clients in the real estate corporate world, I could say one thing, and I tell people this all the time, especially those kids kids in their 20s and then young adults as they're rising up professionals in their early 30s, I could say this much. If you really want to be uber wealthy at the end of the day, the people that I know that have done really, really well, they have one thing in common. They own a lot of real estate. It just seems to be a common thing that people that get it put it together a portfolio over time. I always talk about the example of the Portuguese Italian bricklayer who came to Canada in the 50s and 60s. They're and they're working through in the 70s and they're acquiring one property, one property, one property at a time. You know, they don't spend, you know, on crazy things. They, they they're very frugal. And then as they're 90 something, people look at them and they're like it doesn't look like they have a pot to you know what in. And it turns out they got 10 properties mortgage free. Sounds pretty
1: smart to me. It does. It does. And I mean, let's, you know, a lot, a lot goes, uh, there's a, there's a lot that you can say about people that are frugal in a certain way because it helps them benefit for the future. So having that understanding of how to build makes a big difference. So, so, you know, you have to have a lot of respect for, you know, you talk about the Portuguese or Italian bricklayer, and they're probably not making as much as let's say an executive, right. But they save their dollars. They try their best to make sure that they're spending it on something that will give them a return, right? Rather than saying, great, you know what? I'm just going to go buy this Gucci purse and handbag and slides and, and, and you know, utilizing the money for things that that are not going to give you that return. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with spoiling yourself because as someone who's going to be successful with fi- with their finances, you have to set aside some money to treat yourself to something because it can't always be all work, no play. Because then you get burnt out.
0: Right? And, and there's a, psycholog- a psychologist that have said in studies that you will not have the incentive to work hard and want to grow because you've given yourself no incentive. So Correct. there is a thing about work reward, work reward. Absolutely. Yep. I mean, one, one of the books that I've read several times is Secrets of the Millionaire Mind by T. Harv Eker. I
1: recommend that to everybody. He talks about a system. Again, we talk about systems again, right? Always oh, a system it. on how you take yourself to make yourself financially free. He talks about setting up various bank accounts, and part of it is you take your earnings, and a portion of it goes to savings, a portion of it goes to charity, a portion of it goes to just blowing it. So he says, look, you know what, if you want to go and have a $400 bottle of champagne because that's what you like, you do it because you've earned it, right? But make sure that all your other pots are well taken care of so that you can continue to bring your life forward. So that's one thing. You definitely have to have the system in place. And one thing about real estate, though, that I will caution people is that Eddie is right. You don't want to overpay for something now because it's going to take you a fair bit of time to write to, to that wrong. Right? One of the key things about investing in real estate is making sure the metrics make sense. Sure, don't get me wrong. A lot of people buy um, you know, new construction because there's going to be an upside to that, the way that immigration is happening and the way the, the housing market has been going uh, previous to the little dips now. There's definitely a benefit and there's there's several ways to skin a cat, but the tried and true way is to make sure you run your metrics, you don't get emotionally involved, and you make the decisions based on that and don't overpay for it because you won't have to dig yourself out of the hole. You always want to make sure you have a backdoor in anything you do. You come back to the car business, for example, I talk to my used car manager and say, great, if we're going to buy a car for some for our stock, we always have to have an exit plan. It's the same thing with buying a property. Eddie and myself always used to sit down and say, great, here's the exit plan. And this is what we'd say to investors. This property, we expect it to earn this much. And when it hits this amount, we're going to exit. We want to give people the understanding that there is an end to it because it it doesn't allow people to feel that they've earned anything from just sitting on a property for years and years and years. So... I mean, for us and someone, if you use the, the Portuguese bricklayer, for example, mm-hmm. right? Their end result is that they're going to have a very comfortable retirement with 10 paid off properties that they don't have to worry. Their family's going to have that generational wealth at that point. You've passed it on. That's your motivation,
0: right? It goes a really, really long way. I, I, one of the topics I wanted to bring up that was related, but I kind of stepping back for a second and what we're discussing here was the thoughts on, everybody always asks me, you know, well, how's the real estate market doing? What do you think is gonna happen? What's gonna happen in interest industry? But I wanna step back for a second because there's two kinds of people in my mind, and you know, this is again over generalization, but regardless of what's going on in the market and in interest rates, et cetera, I think people have to step back and look at their situation and seeing where you're at in life. The reason I say that is I give the example, you have two doctors, two lawyers, for example, both very successful, making hundreds of thousands in income each, and I've had them as clients, and you think that these people are you know, beyond well off with savings, et cetera. And yet they come to refinance their house and guess what happens? They're rolling a whole bunch of debt into their property. The average Canadian they say has eight credit cards or something like that, but they have car payments, lines of credits, credit cards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when you go and your house has gone up, let's say over the last five years, it's gone up 300,000, let's say. You're like, wow, that's amazing. And then all of a sudden, it turns out you have another two hundred thousand in debt that you've accumulated since your last mortgage. One group of person that has this debt say, "Okay, so my house has gone up. I'm going to go refinance it now, and then I'll be able to pull that debt into one area at a much lower interest rate and a lower payment." I'm the smartest person in the world. Versus the person that goes and buys a property lives frugally. Some of them go and live in their basement even and rent the upstairs or they live upstairs, rent to the basement, maybe, or they just have the whole house, but their property has gone up by that same amount. And then they're saying, you know what? I'm going to refinance it. And I'm going to use this money as my seed money towards buying my next property. And I'm going to run my metrics. And with the mortgage I'm going to have on that one, plus here and the rent I'm going to get and carrying the cost, I'll break even, or I'm going to make a little bit of money every month, but now I own a second property. That, to me, is called building wealth regardless of the market.
1: 100%. And, and I think you recognize there's good debt and there's bad debt. So if you're going to say, great, you know what, I'm going to refinance my house because I have $50,000 in credit card debt that I've amassed on vacations and all of these fancy things. And then you're going to take that $50,000 and I'm going to extend my amortization period another five years so it's a nice, clean monthly payment for me. You've taken that good money and put it against a bad thing, right? Amen. But definitely you take that, you put that into a couple of real estate projects and you look at, at the ROI correctly and you you run your metrics and you follow the process. And yes, you may co- it may cost you a couple hundred dollars every single month, but what's going to happen is that you're going to profit from those ones in the future in a big way because when they're paid off and it's been paid off of the sweat of the of the first house, now that one's paid off as well too. You're laughing. You have so many options at
0: that point. And, and passive income, you know, it's, it's incredible. Uh, I had a mentor at a younger stage that used to preach to the various professionals. And he said, if you can't pay your credit card every month, then you ain't using it. That's just the way it's going to be. You're going to go shop at a cheaper grocery store. You're going to go to less restaurants. You're going to forego the vacation this year. You know, maybe not change your car for the one year. Whatever it's gotta be, it's gotta gotta make sense. And he said, if you're ever gonna over-leverage yourself on one thing, it's gonna be on the house, on the property. Now, not overpaying it, but if you have to squeeze out and you know what, I don't know if I can afford this, but I need it for my family or I think I'll need the extra size, go a little more rather than less. If you have to tighten yourself rather than getting the smaller property, but then blowing it all on credit cards. Agreed, 100%. So that being said, George, in this day and age, where are you seeing the market at? How are you feeling about it as a real estate investor owner?
1: Um, you know, it's 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 kind of scary a little bit, just because, you know, when you look at it from, from a payment perspective and interest rates going up, you recognize it's going to, it's going to stifle some investment, right? But for the people who are hanging on to cash and stuff like that, it's probably a really good time to look at it because the, the property values are going to drop. Um, a certain percentage, and you'll be able to capitalize on those if you have available cash, and it'll turn out to be a good investment because you're going to be carrying less debt. <laughs> and the reality is, is that real estate's cyclical. We're going to pass this. Interest rates are not going to continue to go up uh, uh, as much as people will think that they will. It's not going to be 1980s where you got an 18% rate, you know, 14 to 18% rate. Um, you know, that would be that would be reason to to uh, commit treason against the government. Right, if it, if it got to that point, because then people if we don't have that to, reason would be able to live, life. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, realistically, it may not be a bad time to invest, provided that you can follow a process that allows you to carry that property properly, uh, and you have enough cash down to allow that to happen. It's important that you have that. You know, they have all these courses that they talk about where you know five thousand dollars down and and get this money from your uncle and 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 use that for the cash down, but you're then at that point at the mercy of those people. So, you know, anytime Eddie and myself did a property, we always used to have something saying, listen, I'm going to put down 30% on these properties because we want to make sure that we're covered against, we're hedging ourselves against risk. So it could be interest rate risk if the interest rate goes up. It could be, you know, approval risk because, you know, 20% may not be enough for a, for a multifamily property. And we always tried to make sure that we had some sort of inherent equity built in so it made it comfortable for you. I think that's one thing that's important. There's nothing wrong with discomfort if you know it's going to pay off. But you got to be prepared for all the pitfalls that are going to happen during that time. And you know, if it means that you, know, you got to eat tuna for a whole month to make that happen, you do it if you're, to, if you're willing to make those sacrifices. The thing is many people these days are very accustomed to comfort. right? Many people in North America are very accustomed to comfort. right? We're in a Netflix society. People get everything now. You want to watch a show? You want to binge watch uh, Breaking Bad like you? You can watch it right now. You get everything you want almost immediately. Uber eats. Uber comes and picks you up. You want to go somewhere. There's so many things that we're in in a, a Netflix society that it's very hard for people to acclimatize to a disciplined and structured role to be able to invest effectively. You just got to get that process down right and understand that you're making those sacrifices for the future.
0: George as the wise person once said we are living in a material world and I am a material girl. So that's just the way it is, buddy. That's right. I'll get you a cone bra for that one. It worked for her. I don't know if it will work for you as well. (laughs) Um, One of the final thoughts I want to bring in is uh, talking about times and when times are quote unquote scary and everything else, it blows my mind watching this for all the years I've been on the earth, stock market, real estate market, for example, how similar they are when everybody's buying Everybody wants in at any price. And then when everybody's dumping and prices are going down, nobody wants to be in. I've been told by many, many professionals, the smart people are the ones sitting on the bags of money. And then when nobody is buying and everything else, that's when they're scooping up the stocks. That's when they're scooping up the real estate. Have you heard that one before?
1: I definitely have. And I kind of alluded to it there just now. As yes, well. you like did. If you, got, if you got money right now, it'd probably be a good time to, to purchase an investment property because you're going to have some people who are going to want out that are probably a little desperate because they can't afford that $300 bi weekly. They're not cash flowing the way they want it to be. And you can turn that in and leverage that into an opportunity. So I 100% agree with that. Um, you know, stocks are one of those things that people do panic. There's, there's no doubt that people panic and say, well, geez, it dropped this amount. Sometimes the best thing to do is stop. If you don't have the money, stop and write it out and it'll, it'll come back up. But if you do have the money, you know, dollar cost averaging, you throw that money back in. And, and when it goes back up, you're, you're going to make up more than what you've lost. So the same thing goes for the real estate market. Real estate market, stock market, car market, they're all very cyclical, right? In the car market, for example, leasing is a very popular thing. Remember, Ford got rid of leasing in 2009 because the, in the economical uh, forecast for the next three years was not making it conducive to lease vehicles. And there's still some places that don't do it. But... It's a, it's, a, it's a very good tool for people from an economic perspective to be able to drive something at a cheaper payment, right? But it's all cyclical. Leasing came back in full force. Leasing is very popular now after it took a hiatus for three years. Stock market, real estate market, car market, all the same stuff. It's all cyclical. We've got to learn from the past
0: to remember what you're going to be facing in the future again because it's going to come back around. And all three of those markets, though, when the things are hot, People want them at any price. Watch market, same thing. You know, Rolex, this Rolex retails at $12,000. i will pay 25000 That's what the market's going. Blows my mind. So when it's hot, I'll pay any money. But then as things start to cool down, people are like, I'm going to hold off. I'm going to hold off. I think it'll go down lower. I'll go down lower. And then it's all that gamble. And the, the truth is the other day, none of us can look at a crystal ball and say when it's going to bottom out because we'd all be in Tahiti right now. If we could tell you that. But I, the way I see it, if you're going to go buy a house, let's say 1.7 million, and you're kind of holding off a bit, things cool down. And now all of a sudden, you know what? There's no longer bully offers, multiple bids. I can go put in my conditions, put an offer properly. And now I could scoop it up at 1.4. I think I'm pretty happy with that versus saying, maybe it will go to 1.2. Maybe it'll go to 900. You know, people get, I find they get very greedy and during those slower periods. And I'm, in my mind, jump in, you ready for it because- it's funny because you're going to wait a little more. If it's going to go back, now, you, now you're going to say, I could have had it at this price, and you're going to play that game.
1: That's the whole regret thing, right? People, people think, well, you know, I could wait a little bit longer. It might, it might go this direction, but nothing's guaranteed. Nothing's guaranteed. But realistically, using your example, one seven one four, I mean, it hit 17 before. It will again. So right now, you're buying it at a discount,
0: technically especially for those people that are buying and planning to in the future, if they're going to buy another property, they're going to sell their current property. I tell them, look, in the future you buy let's say 1.4 and whatever happens in 10 years from now, guess what? If it does dip, whatever you're going to go buy is probably something more expensive, which is going to dip more percentage wise. So you're still ahead at the end of the day if you buy and sell in the same market. So just business logic, business sense, think it through, crunch those numbers. Absolutely. Any final thoughts out there? for those car buyers for those real estate investors out there that are saying, you know, what's, uh, what's going to happen as car supplies come back, are real estate supplies coming back? What, what are your general thoughts on these two markets?
1: Well, I mean, car supply for sure. It's starting to come back. I mean, up to today, we had probably 30 vehicles dropped off that were, that were kind of stuck in production due to part shortages and chip shortages and things like that. So you're starting to see that getting a little bit of a revival uh, in my opinion and looking at everything that I've, I've spoken to the various manufacturers and, and a lot of people in the industry, it probably won't be till the latter half of the year, like, you know, last quarter of the year, that you're going to see a marked improvement in the amount of inventory that's coming in and the availability to have stock units. So that's, that's one thing that, that you'll notice that'll probably start to happen, but it won't be full force um, the way it used to be until maybe sometime next year. And, and in my opinion, I think that a lot of manufacturers have learned how to run more efficiently. So when I look at, at running the dealership, we used to have, you know, as high as 1100 cars in stock at one time. And realistically, we don't need that. We found a way where you can have a good balance between factory ordering vehicles for customers who don't need them immediately and selling out of stock for the ones that do need it immediately and, and try to get away from that, you know, whole immediate gratification thing. Um, so there, there's going to be a, an adjustment in the way that inventory levels are across the car market because you won't need that crazy amount of inventory anymore because you can run your business a lot more effectively and efficiently and save yourself a lot of money and interest and things like that carrying that amount of inventory. So you will notice that's going to happen across the car market, in my opinion. Uh, I may be wrong, but I, I don't I don't think so because a lot of the manufacturers are really kind of saying, hey, maybe you don't need that amount of inventory. So that's the one thing. Um Real estate inventory, obviously right now you're going, to have, uh, you're going to have less demand than supply because a lot of people are a little scared and, and I understand, sorry, my lights just went off. That's uh, I understand that uh, in, in a lot of transactions that are closing now, because the property values have dropped down, a lot of people want to uh, uh, renege on the contract. It, it's unfortunate. However, looking at that supply, Canada's opening back up immigration. Immigration is definitely coming back uh, up to today. I got a couple emails from people who are coming to Canada and they're looking for jobs, which is, which is a wonderful thing because you always want to give people an opportunity to, to go down the same path that, that I did. Right. Um, so you're going to find that that's going to help stabilize the um, real estate market because, you know, they got to come here. They're going to have to accept the real estate uh, rates and, um, a lot of people that are led into Canada at this point are, are fairly financially viable. So they're going to be able to contribute in that respect. And, and Canada is bringing in a lot of highly skilled people too. So we're going to benefit from that immigration. It's going to help stabilize the real estate market and the supply issues. Um, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a tough one. It's a tough one, but I would still continue to invest in real estate. I, I'm actually, you know, I just bought a, a pre construction uh, last year because I recognize that it's going to be growing in those areas. And I'm working on a couple other projects outside of the country at the moment because of the popularity there. And uh, I don't think you should ever stop investing. Just check your metrics and make sure that you can support it all.
0: Well, George, if you need uh, those agreements reviewed and closings to happen, please Google Jonathan chosen lawyer. And I'm sure he'll be very happy with his team to assist you in your real estate corporate needs. I'm sure he will. Thank you so much, George, for taking the time today. You know, it's a wonderful conversation when we know we scheduled for an hour and an hour and a half flies by in a moment's notice that goes to show the level of friendship and conversation. You're a highly intelligent guy, very personable, approachable. I got to say, you've been a tremendous friend and mentor to me and really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. For people that do want to reach you as far as questions on cars, real estate, best way to reach you? Uh, if you want to, if you want to look me up on uh,
1: aaronwoodford.com or direct Nissan.ca, my contact information is on there. If you have any questions about cars, uh, real estate, our website is actually down right now for real estate Rangers. But if you go to LinkedIn, you'll find me on there as well too.
0: Look for George Hill. If you find uh, NBA glory, seasoned veteran playing with Giannis, you've reached the wrong George Hill. That's Trust right. me, I made that mistake once. George, I know we didn't meet in the bathroom for the first time, but I'm glad the universe did bring us together. So again, thank you very much. And I'm sure we'll have you back. Your your partner in crime from the Three Amigos. Uh, I'm working very hard in getting him on because he has quite the story as far as his connection to the whole Chosen Lawyer brand and all that. Uh, He was actually the one who took the picture originally that ended up on the t-shirts and mugs that you see. So we're gonna have him on for that story. But he's a very busy man, so we'll continue to diligently work with his team to try to find a scheduling time for Mr. Eddie B. Wicked. It'll be an awesome
1: time when you have him on there.
0: Yeah, he'll he'll have the stories, guaranteed. So as Absolutely. we're signing off, we pull up the, the pipes. my pipes are not like yours, man. Oh yeah, They're not whatever. like yours. I'm and we old. say, I'm getting old, keep living the chosen life.